Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at a familiar Christmas passage this morning. As we're still in the mode of specifically paying attention to Christmas themes and the lessons that God would have for us from that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warriors with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Father, as we look into the nature of your kingdom, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to allow these truths to change the way we think and consequently the way we behave. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, you know our weaknesses, our sins, every one of us, things we've done, the things we struggle with. We pray for your forgiveness and wisdom and mercy. I pray that you would help me to expound these things this morning. Such a tremendous and beautiful passage. We pray, Lord, for your wisdom to understand and apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Be seated. Uh, well, now it's back. Hang on just a second. Letting the nature of Christ's kingdom change our behavior. That is our proposition this morning. That is what we want to walk away with. Letting the nature of Christ's kingdom change our behavior. It's also the uh, title of our text. I read the whole text this morning. Our text is actually Isaiah 9, 5 through 7. But I read the whole thing because it's good to have a context of what we're talking about, is it not? The Lord talks initially and he he presents us and he says, you know, um, uh, the dimness will not be such as was in her vexation when he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Remember, God had brought a certain amount of judgment upon northern Israel through people like Tiglath-Pileser and through people like uh, the, just even the heathen nations round about, the Syrians and the, the Philistines and so forth and so on. And uh, God says, it won't be like that. And, and, and it won't be like when, when I afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. Uh, he brought enemies from the east. tiglath Pleaser III in his famous campaign of 743 came over and, and uh, more grievously afflicted the land of northern Israel. And then, of course, in 722, northern Israel was taken captive. God says, it's, the dimness is not going to be like that. And then he transitions into a prophecy that we see fulfilled in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And Jesus said, uh, or Matthew tells us, that when Christ had his Galilean ministry, that this prophecy was fulfilled as the people who sat in great spiritual darkness, being taught that, hey, you get to heaven by keeping the law. Now they see the light of Christ. They hear the good news of the gospel. Salvation is free through belief in the Son of God who has wrought your works for you, who has worked the work of righteousness for you. They have seen great light. He says, Thou hast multiplied the nation. And, and, and in the mindset of Christ's timeline, he says, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. And I understand we're dealing with some difficult things here, not pretending to have all the answers. But think about Israel at the time of the Romans. They were a large nation. God had allowed them to increase as a people, but was the joy there? Was there actual joy? No, they were serving God in self-centered um, Judaism. They were serving God in self-righteousness. There were a lot of them, and there was a lot of religious protocol. And God had, in a way, increased the nation, but the joy had not increased. And so he moves even beyond that. And now we look forward to uh, Christ's kingdom, what God's going to do there. And he says, they joy before thee according to the joy and harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, I believe he's looking forward to a future time of when men will truly rejoice in the kingdom of Christ. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, the, rod, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. And Isaiah looks back and he says, Lord, just like you used um, Gideon to destroy the Midianites, uh, just like you broke the staff, that oppressive staff of Israel where they would come in and sweep the land and take all their food, you're going to break that yoke again. You're going to break that rod, that staff again. So first of all, we see in verse 5, that's kind of the context. In verse 5, we see the kingdom's victorious nature. The kingdom's victorious nature. And remember, our challenge is to let each one of these things we see about the nature of God's kingdom change the way we think and then consequently the way we behave but first of all we see I'm going to give you a couple of different I believe very viable interpretations of verse 5 and I think really no one of them is correct I think they mold and blend together okay he says for every battle of the warrior and then you talk about a difficult verse to translate brother you have landed on it right here for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise literally every boot of the warrior, every trampling is with confused, rushing, just tumultuous, crazy noise. And, and think, about, think about a battle taking place and, and all that goes on there, just the chaos and the blood and the screaming and all the things, especially in ancient warfare like this where you didn't have guns and bombs. You had to get into hand-to-hand -hand combat. And maybe you were lucky and got chosen as an archer, but that's about as good as it got right there. So... Think about all the chaos and the blood. And, and God has even used these things, has he not, to deliver his people. Uh, when he broke the yoke of Israel's burden uh, from the Midianites, did he not use confused noise and garments rolled in blood? Yeah, he did. Uh, uh, Gideon with his 300 men, they broke pitchers. And then there was absolute chaos in the camp of the Midianites, right? And, and they literally committed uh, uh, a suicide with each other. And so God used these things. And... Uh, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. That's the first coming. Unto us a son is given. That's the first government. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the second coming. And so God says this is going to be different. 
This is going to be different. When my son comes, he doesn't need garments rolled in blood. And he doesn't need the armament of men's warfare to accomplish his work. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has won for himself and all who follow him the victory over sin, Satan, and death. And I believe partially that is what this verse is describing. Jesus is quick, authoritative, and completely self-sufficient victory. Something that was completely different than ancient times over the, over the rule of Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. I love these verses. For as much then as the children, you and me, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, which is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so when Jesus came the first time, he didn't need garments rolled in blood. This was something different. He was victorious over sin, Satan, death because of the work that he did himself on the cross. But I would not be honest if I said, didn't say that I believe this verse also has the idea of Jesus winning a battle for himself without the need for our assistance. You see, when Christ comes back at his second coming, not the first coming of when a child is born and when a son has been given, but in the second coming when the government shall be upon his shoulder. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, he won't need my assistance or yours. In fact, we don't see him using the armaments of, say, um, uh, righteous armies to defeat his enemies. We see him come, and with the sword of his mouth, with the breath of his nostrils, he slays the wicked. And God even talks about this in Isaiah chapter 66, if you want to turn there. God speaks of a fire and a fiery sword that will devour the wicked at his second return in Isaiah 66. Look at verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. But there's also a third aspect of this verse. It just gets, it goes on and on. I find it so intriguing. There's a third aspect of this verse as well concerning the victory of Christ. I could, without doing any injustice whatsoever to the Hebrew Masoretic text behind our King James translation, I could say, but this shall be for fire, for uh, fuel and fuel for fire, but this shall be for burning and fuel of fire, but this shall be for burning and fuel of fire. Let me think about that for a minute. Well, what? What is the this? That's instantly what comes into your mind. Well, if you look at the verb, we find out that its subject is just a few words back. And that is the garments rolled in blood. And if you match up the garments rolled in blood with the uh, gender of the verb, you'll find out that they go together and fit like a glove. And so I could literally say, uh, the garments rolled in blood and they shall be for burning and fuel of fire. That could be an idea of what is being expressed here. And so when Christ comes back, what is he going to abolish? He's going to abolish war. There's going to be no more need for the garments rolled in blood and for the swords. They're going to beat those into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and he's going to devour those things. Uh, nations shall, shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Look at Hosea 
chapter 2, verse 18, if you would with me. Hosea chapter 2, in verse 18. Look at this promise that God makes specifically to Israel concerning his future coming, his future kingdom. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. Uh, Psalm 46, you ever memorize that psalm? Uh, that's a beautiful psalm. Talks about the strength of God. The Lord, our God, is a fortress and refuge. Right? Our God is our fortress and strength and refuge unto all them that are in trouble. Uh, but He says there, "Come and behold the desolations of the Lord. Desolations uh, of the Lord. What? What? De- uh, the works of the Lord. What desolations He hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder, and He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God." I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And so when the Lord comes back, I believe this verse encompasses all of these ideas. That Christ will be victorious over sin, Satan, and death, which he has done. And in the very end of his kingdom, he will completely subjugate death, as we've looked at in Sunday school, right? When he casts death and hell into the lake of fire. Uh, But he will also be victorious over his enemies with fire. He'll not need our assistance. The word of his mouth will slay the wicked at the battle of Armageddon. And according to Zechariah, he will also use suicide, um, people turning on each other for the enemies to destroy the enemies. And he will also destroy forever and for always any aspect of war. He's going to be victorious over all of those things. So this is a victorious nature of the kingdom that we see. So what do I do with this information? Well, if nothing else, we should do this. With such a victorious captain at the helm, Why would you and I settle for any kind of defeat in our Christian life? When I say that, I'm not talking about, well, I'm not going to let anybody run over me. That's arrogance. And that is defeat, by the way. When my arrogance rules me and my pride determines how I respond, that is defeat, whether I realize it or not. When I say don't live in defeat, I'm talking about if you struggle with some sin like I do, and and I know you do because you're 98.6 and breathing. So therefore... Don't, don't be content to live with that and let it grieve you. Because the spirit of the victorious Christ lives in me and lives inside you. And therefore, he's ready and willing and waiting to give you the victory over that, whether it be pride or selfishness or bitterness or anger or lust or inability to be content, covetousness, whatever it might be. Let Jesus give you the victory in that. Uh, so first of all, we see the, the kingdom's victorious nature. I love 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Second, we see the kingdom's divine nature. It says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government, his second coming, shall be upon his shoulder. You see, the Jews wanted that to happen the first time, didn't they? They didn't want his death, his substitutional death. They thought, we don't need that. Who do you think you are? Just liberate us from the Romans. Just carry on our traditional self-centered pride. Get us back into the position of world power and get in line with our religious ceremonies. If we could boil down their, what they desired of Christ, that would be what they wanted. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to die for you and me, 
pay for our sins, and then come back again. And so we see uh, that this governor, the divine son of God, is the governor of this kingdom. And the governor, being perfectly holy and perfectly just, will not let anyone into his kingdom who is not pure of heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse chapter 5, 6 and 7, have by many commentators been shoved aside. Because at first glance, if you read through those things, it, some of it, if you're not paying attention, <laughs> can really sound like a works-based salvation. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you took that out of context and were just like, oh, well, I got to do better, right? But what did God say was the first prerequisite when he opened up? Really, those chapters are talking about the behavior of a kingdom citizen. What God expects of the people who call themselves children of God. Because remember, Jesus was talking to a Jewish audience and what they thought God wanted from the kingdom of heaven what they were being taught by the Pharisees was actually quite opposite to what God really wanted. And so Jesus had to clear up a lot of false doctrine there. So those chapters are perfectly applicable to you and me, but we have to understand that it has not, they're not things we have to do to get saved. They're things we do because we're saved. And also, we, he gives us at the beginning of that chapter 5 the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of heaven. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, well, I just have to muster up a little bit of inward self-holiness and I can be pure of heart. No. What does Acts chapter 15 verse 9 tell us? Let's turn there because I don't have it memorized. Acts chapter 15 verse 9. I love, in fact, if you don't have these uh, two passages linked in your Bible and you like to write things down and underline, I would recommend writing Matthew 15, or Acts 15 9 beside Matthew 5 8 and vice versa. At least make a mental note. This is important. <clears throat> but Paul, or um, Peter, excuse me, and says in verse 8 of Acts 15, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them, that is the Gentiles, witness, giving them, that is the Gentiles, the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, the Jews, and put no difference between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles. How? purifying their hearts by faith. So that is how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Without that, you're not going to see God. Your heart has to be purified through faith in the Son of God and what he has accomplished for you and me on the cross of Calvary. He paid the price for my sin with his own blood. And when I acknowledge that reality and in my heart turn from sin to the Savior, my heart will be purified by faith. And that is the prerequisite to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus meant in Acts in uh, Matthew 5.20 when he said, For except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, what he was saying was, man's righteousness isn't enough. Even the most religious person isn't good enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. You have to have something more. And we would learn later on that ultimately that is his righteousness imparted to us through his sacrificial death, is it not? Where God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, we're brought up to that righteous standard. And it far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And so only uh, the pure in heart will enter the kingdom of the divine governor. So as we think about letting this whole reality change us in what we're reading here, 
then that means, well, as a kingdom citizen, and as a picture, as a small little picture of Jesus' kingdom, which is what I am and what you are if you're saved, then that means I have to understand, and, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but um, when we look at people and we witness to people and talk to people, the only way we're gonna, that they're going to be fit for the kingdom of heaven is to have their heart purified by faith. And so the gospel is always primary. And it's easy to get wrapped up when we talk to people it's easy to get wrapped up in, oh, well, you enjoy this good thing. Well, I enjoy that good thing, too. And, oh, you like to go to church and do these good things. Well, that's nice. I like to do that, too. And if we're not careful, we can give people the feeling that doing things is okay. Because we naturally want to cater in our flesh. We want them to accept us and like us. And we want to compliment them by nature. That's who we are. Because we want to be received and accepted. We have to understand that, first of all, we have to confront all that self-righteousness with the reality that, no, your heart is wicked unless it's purified by faith. Because the divine governor lets no one in who is not purified by faith. Secondly, the names of God's son that we see here give us an insight into the divine nature of his coming kingdom. His name shall be called Wonderful. Uh, it has the idea of awe-inspiring, secret, and unique. Remember when Manoah, remember when the angel of the Lord who I believe, by the way, was a pre-appearance, Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are divided on that. Not a problem. No anger issues here. Okay. That, he, uh, Manoah said to that angel, uh, tell me, I pray thee thy name, that when thy words come to pass, in other words, when Samson is born, uh, we may do thee honor. What did the angel tell him? He said, why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Exact same word. Well, it's an adjectival form of this noun. Same concept. So it's something secret and unique and wonderful. And just as that, I believe that angel of the Lord was a pre-appearance of Christ, just as that angel was, no, 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 this isn't for you to know. This is something secret and wonderful. That's the nature of the kingdom that we're headed for. And that is how God wants you and I to appear to a lost world. Titus 2.14 who, meaning Jesus, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Some of us have no issue with that. And uh, zealous of good works. We're unique, right? We're supposed to be unique. That's the idea there. Peculiar, unique, different in a good way. And so what kind of a picture am I? What kind of a picture are you of Jesus' kingdom? When you think of art, if you're anything like me, you like a picture that you can understand. You look at it, you're like, I appreciate that. I can tell what that is. It's something I identify with. You don't enjoy uh, you know, ridiculous abstract art or something that's just been had thrown, paint thrown all at it and called art. You know, that's not a picture in reality. That is man's rebellious idea of art. That's not what God ever really intended. That's an expression of man's, I'm going to break out of my bounds and do what I want. So what kind of a picture am I? Am I that rebellious break out of your bounds picture? Or am I that picture when people look at me, they're like, yep, I can tell exactly what that is. No blurred lines. No wondering where he or she stands. That is definitely a picture of the coming kingdom. And though they may not like the picture, they can tell exactly what it is. And it's a picture that honors God. So which one am I and which one are you? Um, so the, Lord's, the, the Lord is by nature wonderful. And his kingdom will be that way. Delightful and intriguing. He is a counselor. One who gives godly guidance, sound wisdom, comfort at all times. The Lord never gave anybody a single piece of bad advice. When I've had people come to me and say, well, the Lord is leading me to do this. 
um, on more than one occasion. I'll use this as an example because it's happened to me three times. Uh, two people broke up. They got divorced. And, um, and some of these folks who came to me with this information were very close people. So this wasn't like I was talking to total strangers. This was hard to say. Like, well, you know, the spouses were still living. They're like, well, you know, we're going to go, I'm going to go marry so-and-so. I've had to tell those people, no, no, no. I believe the Bible teaches no, no divorce if you can help it. And if it happens, you stay single, okay? And they're like, no, 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 no. There's no way that, no, I'm out of here. The Lord's leading me to do this. The Lord's leading me to do that. And I've had to take a stand and say, well, no, 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 no. The Bible teaches this and take them through the passages and give them the information um, and let them choose. But don't ever be fooled when somebody says, well, the Lord is leading me to do this, but it's contrary to the scriptures. And you're like, well, how can the Lord lead you? He never, he never gives anybody bad advice. he's the holy perfect holy counselor how could he ever do that and lead somebody astray and give them bad advice and so um, he is the counselor my counsel therefore should be the same way not leading people astray and saying well you're right go do this or go do that because after all you know it is what uh, you want to do and your heart can't be wrong now give always give people godly counsel he is the mighty God he is um, the high God Supremacy, power transcending all human ability. This speaks of submission as well. The submission that he will have in the kingdom. He will have the entire kingdom under submission. Am I in submission to him as well? Uh, is he, he is supreme and will be supreme in the kingdom. Does my life reflect that reality now? Because that's what we're headed for. We're headed for a kingdom where God is supreme. And does my life reflect that as well? Everlasting Father. Uh, I thought of ceaseless paternal love when I read this. Ceaseless paternal love. And there'll never be any end of God's uh, gracious fatherly care. Am I that kind of a picture here on earth? Am I a, does that uh, small aspect of his kingdom appear in my life? And of course, he's the Prince of Peace. Where would we be without this title? A picture of restoration, forgiveness, mercy, purity, boundaries. Uh, I love that boundaries you know there is no real peace without boundaries is there not there's no real peace without boundaries you have to have biblical boundaries for there to be actual peace that's why children have to have real boundaries because there can be no peace in their lives if they don't know where the limits are and when they don't have those limits they're often rambunctious and anxious and angry and and on goes the list of of troubles and so these are the things that will characterize the kingdom christ with his restoration his restorative desire to see men uh, restored to himself his willingness to forgive, his mercy, his purity, these things should flow from my life. So what's the application? Well, it's simple. God wants each believer to be a small picture of Christ's coming kingdom. The divine nature of his kingdom should reflect in me. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and may give light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, right? We should be that picture. And one of the greatest ways we're going to be a picture to people is by the way we express genuine love and a lack of bitterness and resentment why do you think Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 28 through 32? I love these verses. Let him that stole steal no more, but let him rather labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, just so I can feed myself? Not necessarily. 
that he may have to give to him that needeth. So let's be a good example that way, working with our hands the thing which is good so we can share with other people, not asking for handouts, not asking for gimmies, and not only that, but also being willing to take what we have and hand it to others as well. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Don't use crass, bitter, harsh language. That's not going to be a good picture of the divine nature of the kingdom that's coming. All right? Uh, and quench not, because what does that do? Well, it tells us in verse 30, and quench not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. When I talk nasty, or use crass, bitter language, or I'm angry with people, and I speak that way, and I, I, because that's what's coming out of my heart, it quenches and grieves that Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. I'm not letting him have full reign. I'm taking a bucket of water and dumping it on his light, because I have a choice to serve me or to serve him, right? And uh, quench not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you with all malice and evil speaking, and be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, which hath forgiven you. You know, the world thinks it does those things. And, but, you know, I was telling this to Sandra the other day. You know, as I drive around Corvallis, everything is <clears throat> peace and love, right? Peace out. It's all about peace and love in this town, right? Me, I respect you. You respect me. You got your beliefs. I got mine, and that's fine. We all live together in unity and peace. But you notice that everybody's got a bumper sticker of a little girl holding a bomb? Or somebody's got a bumper sticker of somebody with a, a switchblade? Or it's just weird, violent, satanic bumper stickers. Well, that's odd in a town that's all about love and peace and goodness. But that's what's really in their heart. And the true story is with the world, well, it's all about love and peace as long as you serve Satan. Not as long as you serve Christ. See? But when you and I can actually show that to people who do serve Satan and the world, and not just toward people that serve us, for if you love your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? When you and I can reach out and actually show that genuine lack of bitterness and lack of anger toward others who don't know Jesus and who are openly uh, angry at him, then we will begin to shine forth the light of Christ's divine kingdom and be good pictures of what he is wanting us to be. Thirdly, the kingdom's eternal nature of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It's a shame to memorize Isaiah 9-6 and not memorize Isaiah 9-7. That's just my personal encouragement to you. Of the increase, the idea is literally of the abundance, the overflowing abundance of his peace and government, there shall be no end. A few final thoughts. We'll wrap it up. Ezekiel 48.35. Turn there with me, if you would, please. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. There will be no shortage of peace, my friends, because the presence of God will be physically there in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we see that displayed beautifully in Old Testament poetical language, look at Ezekiel chapter 48. Ezekiel 48. I would love to read the whole thing, but it would probably put a lot of people to sleep, and I don't want to do that. There's a lot of measurements in here, but those measurements can be a blessing too, if you, if you really think about them. But anyway, the Lord is describing the millennial city. Not the millennial temple here. He does that earlier. Here he's describing the millennial Jerusalem. Not the Jerusalem coming out of heaven, 
This is a new, the millennial Jerusalem. And he talks about its four walls, and he talks about how long they are, and they're quite long. And he talks about three gates for this tribe, and three gates for that tribe, and three gates for this tribe, and three gates for that tribe. And he talks about the suburbs of the cities that the priests and minister. This is all in a millennial context in the, for the kingdom of Jesus. And then he makes this interesting statement. And he says at the end, and I don't remember how big this is. I would have to dig out my notes. It was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be, in the Hebrew tongue, Yehovah Shema. The Lord is there. Wow. So there is my God. And the name of the city is called, The Lord is there. And the reason I will have abundance of peace, never-ending peace, is because he's there. And that's where he's going to be. And it's going to be that way for all eternity. And nobody can take that away from you if you're saved. Nobody. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. David's kingdom will have no end. You see, David's kingdom has value not because of some intrinsic quality, uh, not because of some intrinsic goodness found in David, but because of the one who's David, who David's line represents. I was talking about this with Brother Dennis. If you, if you go to Israel and you go to David's tomb, and when he was there, he had to give up his camera and other things he wasn't allowed to take into the tomb because to them it is a place almost bordering that of worship. It is very reverential. And you don't talk and you don't take a flash and you don't uh, uh, speak anything uh, you know, that would be crass or, or rude or anything like that. You, you go in there and you are very focused and you are very reverential because that is David's tomb. How much more great is the Christ of the David that we read about, right? I love uh, Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. That was his first coming, right? And the bright and morning star. That's his second coming, right? And when he comes back, he's going to rule the world. And he gives this gospel invitation. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. In other words, when God calls you, don't resist. Today's the day of salvation. It might be too late if you wait. When you hear the spirit say, come. When that conviction works in your heart, just say, come. Let's go. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. David's throne has value because of the God that represents David's throne. And because of the God that is represented by the throne of David. And of course, his judgment and his justice will have no end. It says, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. There's the eternal nature of Christ's kingdom. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not me, not my works, not any armies. God doesn't need garments rolled in blood. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this action. And so Colossians 3, 4, 3, 1 through 4, we find this application of all that we've looked at. Live for eternity, not for today. Remember, this is we're letting the nature of Christ's kingdom as we read these things change our mindset and consequently our behavior. And this goes right along with the admonition of Colossians 3, 1 through 4, right? If ye then be risen with Christ. You're going to call yourself a Christian? If this is really true, or since ye be risen with Christ, 
Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead. The old man has been put to death, rendered ineffective, right? According to Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 3. The old man's been rendered ineffective. The power that Satan had over me has been broken. Yeah, the old man's there. I still have to deal with him every day, but he's been broken as far as his cords over me. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So live for eternity and not for today. Let this knowledge of Christ's kingdom change your outlook and consequently your actions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these truths. What a blessed reality, Lord, as we ponder your kingdom. There's so much we didn't talk about, so much we didn't touch, and so many things to look forward to. Pray that you'd help us to be, each one of us, not blurry, rebellious pictures of this coming kingdom, but instead uh, vibrant, uh, real, discernible, and holy pictures of the coming kingdom in which our Savior will rule. We thank you for these truths, and we pray that you would take this message and apply it as each and every heart has need. And Lord, that you would minister and encourage each person today as, uh, as they see as you see fit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.